Let's read God's Word then in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, and in Psalm 119. The book of Psalms and Psalm 119. And we'll read from the beginning of the psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who do seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his way. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counsellors. And so on. May the Lord bless to us that reading of his holy and infallible word, and to his name be the praise. Let's sing again in that same psalm, Psalm 119 at the beginning. on page 339 in the blue book and we'll sing the verses marked 1 to 8 the first part of the psalm blessed are they that undefiled or straight are in the way who in the Lord's most holy law do walk and do not stray and so on the whole section first section psalm 119 blessed are they that undefiled Blessed are Blessed are 
that section of the psalm that we read, Psalm 119. And we can read again at verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Especially the words that we have at the beginning, at verse 18. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Most of us will be familiar with this psalm as uh, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. Uh, technically, it's also the longest chapter in Scripture, but that's just by the way. But it's a very interesting psalm here that we find in the middle of a section of psalms. The psalms that have come before this are what are referred to as the Hallel Psalms. The psalms that were normally sung round about the time of the Passover. And all the psalms that follow this, particularly the next 22 psalms that follow, are very short psalms, known as the psalms of ascent. Psalms that were sung usually as people came, walked up to Jerusalem on their way to the Passover feast or the other feasts that would take place during the religious uh, year. So, why does this extremely long psalm suddenly appear between these two sets of psalms? Well, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, we have no idea who put the psalms in the order in which they are. There are various theories and so on. <clears throat> but it doesn't really matter. But this psalm is a contrast to what has gone before and what comes after. And you will notice that there is no inscription on it that tells us who wrote it or when it was written or what its purpose was. Many of the other psalms, as I'm sure you've seen in the book of Psalms, of course, Again, depending on the Bible translation that you're using, tell us various things about who wrote them. Psalms of David, uh, a song, etc. and so on. Uh, there are inscriptions that help us to date the psalm very often to a particular uh, area of David's life. Uh, there are other psalms by Asaph, Psalm of Solomon and so on. But this one gives us no clue whatsoever. Or does it? Now I believe that it does. I believe that it does give us a clue as to who wrote it and why it was written. And that clue, as far as I'm concerned, lies in the construction of the psalm. You will remember, of course, that all psalms are pieces of poetry. Uh, in the original Hebrew, they were all written as poems, and this one is no exception. But something that will draw your attention in Psalm 119 is the way that the psalm is set out. There are 22 sections to the psalm, 
And each one begins, at least in this Bible, this translation, and I'm sure in the ones that you have as well, each one begins with a word at the beginning. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with that and that you know what, what these words are. So, for example, at the first, uh, before the psalm begins, we have the word Aleph. Now, that is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you follow through the rest of the psalm, every section is the Hebrew alphabet. So, you've got all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet given to you there. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, He, and so on. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so that's why you've got 22 sections. And each section is eight lines. Now, again, remember that the Hebrew would be written uh, in a different way, of course. We write from left to right. The Hebrew is from right to left. So they would be written across the page. And every single line begins with the letter of the section in which it is. So, for example, the first section, every line begins with the letter A. Now, that doesn't happen in translation. It can't happen in translation. It's one of the problems with translation. There are certain things that you lose from the original. But in the original Hebrew, every line in every verse <coughs> begins with the letter of the section. Now, why was that? Well, that's what we know nowadays in modern terms as an acrostic. And uh, perhaps you're using an ESV Bible that tells you at the bottom of the page that this psalm is an acrostic. It's not the only one in Scripture. There are several others. Psalm 8, Psalm 34, and Psalm 25 and 37 are all acrostics as well. Uh, if you're not so familiar with the term acrostic, what it means is, of course, that each letter can, of the word can be taken to form something else. So you take, uh, for example, the com one of the commonest acrostics that we know in Scripture is the word grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's an acrostic. Now, what was the purpose of an acrostic? It's a memory tool. It's to help you remember or learn something off by heart. Sadly, nowadays, <coughs> that practice has gone out of fashion in schools and so on. Uh, people don't learn things off by heart like they used to. And when I was young, certainly we were made to memorise psalms uh, catechism and various other portions of scripture and not only in Sabbath school but also in school in the day school as well and uh, I can remember my father telling me us telling me about being at a fank once out at Bidraklet here not so far out there must have been during the 1930s and there was a man from Shawbost who sang the whole of Psalm 119 in Gaelic by himself at that funk. Whether he presented it or not, I don't know. I don't remember that part of the story. 
But imagine the effort that was taken to memorize scripture then. And of course in those days, Bibles perhaps weren't as common and yes, easily available as they are now. Therefore, the memory tool was uh, extremely important. I have failed completely to find out who that man was. Uh, having asked various people in Chorbost and so on, nobody seems to recall who he was. Maybe he wasn't from Chorbost, I don't know. I have no idea. But since then, I heard of another lady in Galson who used to do exactly the same thing when she was milking the cow in the evening in the byre. And people would gather around outside the black house, outside the byre, to listen to her singing the psalm. Psalm 100, the whole of Psalm 119. I wonder if there's any of us here who could do that now. I certainly couldn't, and I'm sure probably most people could. A memory tool. So why would the writer of this psalm construct it as a memory tool? <clears throat> Obviously one of the reasons would be that he wanted people to memorize it. And in particular, he wanted, I think, a particular person to memorize it. And the clue to that is in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word. Who was the young man? Well, I think it was Solomon. And I think that the writer of the psalm was David and that he wrote it for Solomon uh, as a reminder for him, knowing that Solomon was the one who was to reign after him. Now, you may disagree with that uh, conclusion. It doesn't really matter. It's not important in one sense. But what is important is what the psalm is about. In every single verse of the psalm, except three, there is a word in Hebrew, and they're translated in English in different ways as well, that refers to the law of the Lord. That's the way you find it starting off. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. We just sang this. Who walk in the law of the Lord. This is what the psalm is about. The theme of the psalm is God's law. So you find in verse 2, testimonies. In verse 3, ways. Verse 4, precepts. And then statutes. And so on. And if you look at every single verse except 3 you will find a synonym for God's law being used in each line of the uh, verse. Now, that's quite an amazing piece of literary skill to be able to do that. The three verses, by the way, in case you're wondering what they are, they're 84, 122, and 132. You can look later when you go home and you'll see that uh, a synonym for law is not included there. So this is the writer's prayer, <clears throat> in a sense. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, your law, your commandments, your statutes, etc. And then we come to the verse that uh, I chose as my text. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 
what was meant by your law or the law? Now, for most people, when we think of God's law, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, of course, are a summary of God's law. But we have to remember that the Ten Commandments weren't given until Mount Sinai. When Moses and the children of Israel when, uh, are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments are given to Moses, you will remember, on the two tablets of stone, the, the first ones that he breaks when he comes down, when he sees them worshipping the golden calf, and then he is given another two later on. The moral law, that's how we refer to the Ten Commandments. And if you look at them, you'll see that basically the first four, they're divided into six and four, or four and six, I should say, the first four deal with man's duty to God. And the other six deal with man's duty to man. And that's why they're referred to as a summary of the moral law. And that's what Jesus himself says uh, in the New Testament when he is speaking to the rabbi who asks him, or the young man who asks him, what's the most important part of the law. And he quotes from the first commandment and then summarizes the second. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, etc. and so on. And then the same for your neighbor. That these are a summary of the law. But that's probably not what David and the children of Israel would have understood as the law at that particular time. What did it mean to them? It meant what we refer to as the Pentateuch. That is, the first five books of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some think Judges would also have been written by that time as well. And we have to bear in mind that these were the only books that David would have access to. These were the only scriptures that existed in David's time. And they were referred to as the books of the law. And you see the Lord Jesus Christ using that term regularly in the New Testament. When he refers to the law of Moses and then he refers later on the road to Emmaus when he's talking to the two who are walking, Cleopas and probably his wife, although that's debatable again, uh, who are walking to Emmaus, that he opens to them the law, and he talks to them about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Old Testament. And so the books of the law would have been the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, if you start to think about that, you see that the law is not actually given to Moses and the children of Israel until they reach Mount Sinai. And then there are two branches of the law given to them. There's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and then there is the ceremonial law, which is given to them 
uh, for worship, for the purpose of worship and for the purpose of society in which, they, which you live. You may be more familiar, some of you, with the terminology in Gaelic. The moral law and the ceremonial. Does that mean that there was no law before it was given to Moses? Now that's a very interesting question. It can't possibly mean that God's law didn't exist before Moses and the children of Israel get to Mount Sinai because civilization had been in existence for a number, considerable number of years before that. Uh, did Abraham not know of God's law? Did Noah not know of God's law? And if we work further back, we come to, did Adam and Eve not know of God's law? And of course our answer to that has to be, yes, of course they did. How did they know it? We'll come back to that in a minute. But we can even go further back than that. And we have to say that God's law existed in all eternity before anything was ever created. It's very hard for us sometimes to get our heads around exactly what that means. When we think of eternity, it's very easy for us to think of eternity, in, well, easy in one sense, to think of eternity as we look forward from here to eternity because we have a time frame on which to base it. But when we look backwards, how can we understand eternity? Something that never had any beginning, was always there. And yet that is one of the attributes of God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, eternal. Equal in power and glory. And the law existed before anything was created. It existed among Father, or between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Like so many, or all, of the attributes of God existed in the Godhead. In the same way as God's love existed. We tend very often not to think of God's love as only coming and being shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that would be quite wrong. God's love, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed in a state of reciprocal love. That is love going backwards and forwards between all three persons. Never increasing, never diminishing. Cannot increase, and it cannot diminish. And it was the same with God's law. The law existed in all eternity before anything was created. How do we know that? Because the first breach of the law takes place in heaven. And that is something that might surprise us enormously when we come to think about it. That the first place that God's law is broken is in heaven itself. 
Who broke it? The angels. The angels who fell. Satan and his angels. We know from the book of Job that the angels were created. And remember that the angels are created beings. The angels were created before the creation of the world. The book of Job tells us, and God questions Job and says, Where were you when the sons of God, i.e. the angels, sang for joy at the creation? You see, we have a problem very often when we come to think of the creation. It's difficult for us to get our heads round the idea of God creating everything in six days. We're not told when the angels were created. They may have been created before the beginning of the creation as we know it. Most theologians tend to think that they were created probably at the same time as Adam was created. But again, that's a theory that is hotly debated in many places. And it doesn't really matter. In the big scheme of things, it's not important. But the first rebellion that takes place against God's law is in heaven itself. And it is there that Satan rebels and others with him. If we take uh, the term that's used in the book of Revelation literally, then it would seem that a third of the angels rebelled with Satan. And they are cast out of heaven. What was their sin? Well, examining passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, again, we don't have time to go into that just now, it would seem that the sin was pride. That Satan wanted to be equal or thought himself equal to the persons of the Godhead. Again, that is highly argued about by many theologians. But there is no doubt that Satan fell. Jesus himself says, I saw Satan fall as a star from heaven. And so we come then into the situation of the human being. Adam is created as our federal head. That's the theological term. That means that he is the representative of all humankind. And you know, of course, that after a period of time, Eve is tempted and deceived by Satan. And in, in turn, she offers the fruit to her husband. The forbidden fruit. Now, how long were they in the garden before that happened? We tend to assume, do we not, that the fall happened almost immediately after the seventh day, after the first week. But that may not be the case at all. They may have lived even for hundreds of years in the garden, in God's presence, because God was present with them in the garden. The Garden of Eden is very often referred to as the first temple, where Adam and Eve worshipped God in holiness. They were created perfect in holiness. 
Eve was deceived, but Adam chose to sin willingly. And there's the big difference between the two. So many who blame Eve and say it was all Eve's fault. But it wasn't. Adam chose to sin, to break the law, to break God's command. And you see, he does almost immediately what you and I have been doing ever since. He tries to blame God for what happened. What does he say? The woman you gave me. You go back to the book of Genesis, you'll find that so clear. The woman that you gave me was the cause of my sinning. It's always somebody else's fault. Never ours. And when Adam sins as our federal head, the curse of sin comes in. God's law is broken. And then we have the process of God re-establishing his covenant. And you will see almost immediately afterwards two things taking place. Adam and Eve are thrust out of the garden. But as they're thrust out, God's mercy is shown to them in an amazing way. You remember that they were naked in the garden. And that's the first thing they become conscious of when they sin. Their nakedness before God. What does God do? One little verse tells us he clothes them in an animal skin. In the, in the original Hebrew, the word is singular. It's a skin of an animal, not animals. In order to do that, the animal must have died. Blood had to be shed before a skin could be provided to clothe Adam and Eve. And if you follow the sign of the blood from then on, all the way through the Old Testament and into the New, you come to the cross of Calvary. The breach of the law could only be healed by the atonement that was to be rendered at Calvary. There was no other way for God's perfect justice to be satisfied except by perfect obedience from a perfect sacrifice. That's what it's all about. So when David is writing here about the law, he is bearing all that in mind. And this is what he says. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things or wonderful things out of your law. It's not just the moral law. It's the ceremonial law as well. It's everything that went with it. And you and I should have this prayer every single day. Open my eyes. And it is a prayer. 
that we would see wonderful things out of your law. We don't have time this morning to go through all the wonderful things that we would see even in just the first five books of the law. Look at Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac. Wasn't it amazing how God provided an alternate sacrifice? And you begin to see the symbolism the shades of the New Testament appearing in the Old from the very beginning. Oh, it's there before that. It's there with Noah. It's there with the Ark. It's there with Enoch. It's there all the way through. If we look carefully enough for it, we see all these things. But some are more obvious than others. And as we see Abraham, we see Ishmael and Hagar being thrust out. But that the blessing comes through Isaac. And so on. And as we follow through, we come through, through Isaac, Jacob, through the time in Egypt. And then, of course, the liberation of the people of Israel, the children of Israel, from the slavery in Egypt and being taken to the promised land. And how often have we seen that being used as symbols again of how we are taken from the slavery of sin until we are finally brought into the promised land of heaven itself. It's there in the ceremonial law. Look at the tabernacle. Look at all the sacrifices that were involved. Look particularly at the Day of Atonement, where the High Priest, and only the High Priest, went into the Holy of Holies with blood. Blood that had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. You find the letter to the Hebrews goes into that in great detail. What was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was a slab of gold that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubims. The cherubims with their wings almost touching above, looking down on the mercy seat. Peter comments on that much later on. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels desire to look. It's not referring there to the fallen angels but to God's elect angels who cannot understand regeneration and salvation. The gift of grace that is given to everyone 
who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the law was all about. The law foreshadowed what was to come. And David understood this. There were many things David wrote that he didn't understand. Go to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he writes of the crucifixion of Christ with such detail a thousand years before it took place. But he couldn't have understood what he was writing about. He had some notion of it through, through God's grace to him. Go to Isaiah 53. Did Isaiah understand what he was writing when he predicts of the suffering servant who was to die for his people? Probably not in full detail. But they understood the prediction of Messiah to come. Moses spoke of it. You remember at the, uh, at the, the, the when the fiery serpents burnt, uh, not burnt, attacked the children of Israel that Moses lifts up the brazen serpent into the desert. And Jesus refers to that later. The Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way. There are so many things that we see where the Old Testament dovetails with the New. The two fit together. You cannot understand one fully without the other. The Old Testament saints didn't have the full revelation. But you and I do. And therefore we have no excuse for not searching the scriptures to understand these things. Or there are some things that the Lord's people may not understand in this lifetime. Perhaps they will not even be revealed to them in glory. Who knows? That would be to speculate. But all that is necessary to them is revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Jesus promised us in John 14? That he would send another comforter. And he would teach us all things. And it is through the Holy Spirit that you and I gain the understanding that we may have of the word of God. It's not surprising that David has this prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. We're only here for a short time. And that is more evident to us every single day. May this be your prayer and my prayer every single day that God would open our eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit to understand his law and not only understand it but to be able to obey it in the measure of grace that we have given. None of us can obey God's law completely in this life. The commandment is to be ye holy even as I am holy. But yet that is impossible for us. But we strive to that end 
day by day and opening our eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit will help no end. May this be your comfort and my comfort. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may indeed see wondrous things in your own. We thank you for that little by little you open the scriptures to us, that you have given the gift of the Holy Spirit to your people to understand your word bit by bit. And we thank you that as we go on, that we learn more and more. Be with us and guide us, teach us your ways, that we may understand and be with us in the rest of the, the day. Pardon our sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us conclude then by singing the verses that we uh, actually were meditating on. Verses 9, I think we'll just sing 9 to 14, given the time just to four verses. Psalm 119 at verse 9, By what means shall a young man learn his way to purify, if he according to thy word thereto attentive be? Unfeignedly thee have I sought with all my soul and heart. Oh, let me not from the right path with thy commands depart. Thy word I in my heart have hid, that I offend not thee. O Lord, thou ever blessed art, thy statutes teach thou me. The judgments of thy mouth each one my lips declare it hath. More joy thy testimonies weigh than riches all Let's sing these verses then to God's praise, Psalm 119 at verse 9. By what means shall a young man learn? I
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever.